It's, it's great to be here uh, with you uh, this morning. Uh, I was really excited about coming. Uh, well, uh, as Andrew said, most of my, most of my uh, career, uh, for 20, 20 plus years, I was a youth pastor and a family, uh, family pastor, um, was working with students. And the fun thing at City Team, I've been in the last two to three years, I've been the director at City Team in San Francisco, where we have groups all the time coming in to volunteer. Uh, so um, I, still, uh, I still love working uh, with students. Um, the thing that's fun about working with students is that they're pliable. There's something that happens to us. There's a calcification process that happens that um, as we get older, we become very adept at not having experiences that move us out of our comfort zone, right? We know how to position it. We know language. We say, ah, oh, we'd love to come over, but uh, we can't. We have something going on because that seems uncomfortable, right? And the, and the older we get, and, and sometimes it, we just this mindset that uh, it, we go, I, at least for me, I go into this place of comfort. So what was fun about working with students, uh, especially like with me, most of my time at Menlo Park, I chose to be the middle school pastor because uh, there's nothing better than 11-year-old boys and their imaginations and, uh, and the way they think. It's, it is. It's like living in a lab experience with them. And so parents, uh, we, we would do things with them to get them outside, um, and, and outside and understand their faith in different ways. And so as we talk, uh, you know, and this morning, as we talk about uh, how do we embrace the poor, and my title being we need the poor more than, uh, than they need us, um, all the time, uh, an 11-year-old boy, 12-year-old boys especially, and, and junior high students, young adolescents, they're used to being, uh, they're used to being chased out of places. <laughs> they're always used to being told that they're doing something wrong. Uh, I have, uh, I have uh, adolescent daughters. I have an uh, eighth grader, soon to be a uh, freshman. I have a freshman daughter. I have two, two daughters that were born very close to each other, and uh, we're not smart, but they were. And... Um, but uh, they're just always, you just watch them. They're always adjusting their life. So they have a lot more flexibility than we do. And um, inevitably what would happen is that um, parents would say, boy, I really want my daughter, I really want my son to go on this trip with you. We're going to Mexico to build homes. We're going here to do, what, you know, we're going to the inner city. And um, there was a number of motivations uh, uh, that I think we as parents uh, would have. One is that we want, we, want our, we want our children to get outside of the bubble right? We want them to see things. We want them to experience it. We want their faith to become real. We want, there's, there's all these good things. And then there's this other mix that we want them to appreciate and be thankful. This is the language we use, right? We want them to be thankful for what they have. They don't know how good they have it, right? They complain about things and you want to go, you know, and this is why there is a tradition within America that we say, when I was your age, I didn't have any of these things, Right? Um, now, my daughters come home, and they pick up their phones. Yes, we got them phones. And uh, they sit on them and laugh. They will text me. My daughter will text me from the living room to get her something to drink. I'm like, are you kidding me? I, I just had surgery on my knee a week ago. And, you're, and I'm like, what is you? You are healthy. And I, I'm tired. I'm too, you know. So, uh, so we see this. So, so. So kids, we would take students away to do, uh, to do different uh, projects. Uh, and so over the years, I think I've been to Mexico 40 or 50 times to build homes. I think uh, I've been overseas into a number of countries with, with teams. And, um, uh, and then right now I have groups. Just yesterday, 
group of students from uh, Danville, San Ramon came over uh, to, to go into the SRO hotels in San Francisco uh, where they put, we placed the homeless and uh, we delivered uh, lunches to them. And so when they come back, we kind of do a debrief and I say, so what, what did you learn? What, what were your experiences? What was something you saw that you weren't expecting? And they have different uh, you know, different thoughts that came up. People were nicer. It was a lot cleaner. It was a lot cr- more cramped, right? And the great thing, uh, the great thing about, um, about adolescents is that they will actually say what they think. Uh, this is the great, this is the reason why uh, we send them to school all day because we don't want to hear what they think most of the day. <laughs> and it's why summer is coming and if you're a good parent, you go, we now have... A lot of activities for them to do, but they will say things. But inevitably, one of the things that will happen is that a student will say, I, I, I am so grateful, you know, for what I have. I didn't realize. They come back from a week-long trip and they'll say, boy, after working with those who are disadvantaged, uh, with those maybe in, even in a different culture, they would say, boy, I, I didn't realize how lucky and fortunate I was. And in the response of parents, is the biggest smile I've ever seen, right? Um, because it, it, there's something about swimming back upstream and taking care of your family, right? That you'd go, see, yes, oh. And we, as Christians, we'd say, boy, we want our children to be grateful. But really, I would, uh, about uh, towards the end of my time as a youth pastor, I would say, I don't know if these mission trips are really doing the thing that we want them to do. I think we might be, more cementing uh, cultural beliefs than we are really exposing students to maybe, uh, you know, to what God wants to do over the world in the heart of God. And, and the truth of the matter is, and this is true, our motivations and our learning and our understanding, it, it's, it's always messy. It's not one versus the other. I, I wish it could be that clean cut. We're doing both at the same times because so much of our understanding uh, a lot of times is locked in you know, just our upbringing and how we see things and how our, the direction our world goes in. So we're, uh, you know, we're always traveling, uh, we're always understanding things as we're moving. And, um, but ultimately, I would hear this thought and I would sometimes come back and say, I don't know if I created some of these kids, I think really, you know, like I think they really grew in their faith and I think I made them a little, I think I made them desire capitalism also a little bit more. Like they would come back and they would go, oh boy, da- mom and dad, I do not want to live that way. I am going to get good grades. And the parents would be like, that's what I'm talking about, right? I am not. You know. So they would, we'd expose people to poverty or to hard situations. And they, the response was a gratefulness and also a desire to say, boy, I am going to work harder. I'm going to be more thankful. And in hearing those things, I started to realize that uh, oftentimes... What I was doing without knowing it is I was actually um, using those people who were poor to t- uh, for, for our own purposes, right? What happens, this is, uh, let me give you just a, a, a small microcosm of this. The microcosm of this in, in San Francisco is we have people who come, um, who, who come to deliver lunches and uh, we go and knock on doors and uh, they want to have an experience. And they want to, uh, and so many of our groups come in, we talk with people, and we pray for them. 
Well, some of them want to jump right to dessert. They want to pray for them. They want to have the spiritual experience. So they knock on the door. As the person opens the door, as they're handing them the lunch, they will say, can we pray for you? So the biggest complaints, I'm not kidding, the biggest complaints I have from our homeless people that live in these hotels is that they say, we don't know if we say no to prayer if we get the lunch. So what the homeless people do is they go, yeah, do whatever you got to do as long as I get the food. I'm good with it. So what happens is, is that the group then starts going, oh, God, we pray for this person. And their prayers are sincere. And they love the Lord. And what's happening is the homeless, the person in the hotel is saying, hey, whatever it is that you got to do, do your thing. So thanks for praying for me, but I really want the lunch. But they, will, they generally wonder, and this is the feedback we get, if we say no, will they give us a lunch? Will they, can we pray for you? Oh, no, sorry, no lunch for you. Now, we wouldn't think of doing it. They don't know. No one, people aren't treated very well. There's a quid pro quo. In other words, we're going down to use these people for our own spiritual experience. You can do this in the Tenderloin. We can do it in Honduras. We can do it any any country on the earth, Right? We're going to spend a lot of money to go someplace so we have the experience. And so oftentimes, um, yeah, and, and, and the takeaway, when the takeaways are, right, when the takeaway is like, boy, I'm really grateful. I grew in my faith. It beca- it, it's easy, it's easy for that um, to become very self-centered, right? So, in, in, uh, now, I don't say that to shame us into it, but for us to be thoughtful, what does God call us to? What should our approach be? Because it's not that only that is happening. What's happening usually within all of our lives is that um, our faith is growing, and yet sometimes, it, it, again, it's a mix, it, it, if you will. It's a cocktail of different things that are going on. Part of our motivation to love God on a trip like that, that we're spending maybe way too much money to go do, uh, part of us is really growing in our faith. We're outside of our comfort zone, and God does speak to us there. And then there's another part of it that maybe isn't doing, uh, maybe isn't doing as deep a ministry as we were really hoping it would do. And so, um, uh, so as I talk to parents, when they go, "Boy, I am really grateful that my son or daughter who came back, uh, that they they have a new appreciation for the things that they have." Um, there, there's, there's, a, there's actually a parable that Jesus, uh, Jesus um, told his uh, disciples. And here's the parable. It's in Luke 18. It says, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like, I'm not in the, uh, I'm not like those people. I'm not in their position. Right? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here, right? I, and, and, I lo- and, and he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, would not even look up towards heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this, Jesus said, rather, um, I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, the other, went home justified uh, before God. And it's, it always reminds me that every time I'm like, boy, I'm really thankful that I'm not in this position, I go, always remember <laughs> it was the Pharisees who had that point of view. And so what I always think is, okay, how do we then, what is God calling us to? Because it's uncomfortable to work with the poor. 
uh, usually if you, uh, some of you I, I know uh, in the room have been down, and the one thing uh, that I've realized, there, there, uh, well, actually two things that make it difficult sometimes to work uh, with those in a different situation, but, but especially uh, within our own area, those who, have, uh, who are challenged, who are needy, uh, sometimes I say scripture, we use the word the poor. Um, one is this, is that there's a temptation to want to get them to, um, uh, to our level of comfort. Right? So it's like you meet somebody, they, have, they tell you uh, a sad story, you go, oh boy, what are they going to do? Boy, boy, we need to get this person a hotel tonight. Well, here's the thing. Uh, that person has been on the streets and they will be fine tomorrow on the streets. But it is overwhelming for most of us to think that it that what God is calling us to is to bring somebody up, again, to our level of comfort. So God never, um, uh, I, I don't think God wants us to feel guilty um, about uh, the station of life we were born into. He wants us to come to him, but he, he, we, we watch him use every, every station of life with great joy. We don't hear him shame. Oh, that's, that, this is a, that's a cultural context of being, being ashamed you know, hey, you have a good job, it pays well. Oh, yeah, we better be ashamed of that. No, I'm not saying brag about it, okay? Uh, okay, so, but, but really, that, that's uh, the thing. The other part, so we never have to worry about getting somebody to that level, or we never have to feel guilty or bad about giving, of, of, of not having something somebody needs. So if we go knock on a door, and they say, what do you need? My example I always tell people is, if the person says to me, says, uh, is there anything else you need? Here's some food. And they said, well, I really need $100,000. I say, yeah, I, I need $100,000 too. <laughs> I've got girls and they're hopefully going to go to college. And uh, I have, there's not enough money in the bank to do that right now. Um, you, you could see that I would not feel bad about that. But sometimes we would feel bad about other things that they might need. And so uh, this too makes it uncomfortable to go work with people because uh, we don't feel we have answers. And the beautiful thing is we go through uh, this morning and talk about it. Um, Jesus never came to make, just to make people, uh, to move people up uh, to these places in, in, in our life. He came, the greatest gift he gave us is he came and gave us the gift of himself. He brought healing. But uh, uh, it, it wasn't about, uh, um, it, it, Jesus, when he, when he came, he wasn't about just uh, monetizing a different system, right? But it can feel that way when you work with those who are poor. It becomes, it, 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 we feel like it's culturally, uh, I become very culturally aware of that. And uh, it causes me, therefore, sometimes to interact differently with those people than I would with my friends. Um, um, so on that, you know, when we, when we think that way, um, the... Um, What's mixed, into, what's mixed into that approach is sometimes some very subtle things, right? As Americans, we, we value giving, right? We value philanthropy. I've been to other countries where it's not valued. Maybe some of you have been there. I mean, I've been to other countries where it's very common among the, the rich to say, hey, look, the poor, just, they're, they're, a, you know, they're, they're a blight on society. Let's get rid of them. I, I'm not exaggerating. It's almost your, your jaw dropping from, from, from our point of view. Where the highest thing we can do is, uh, you know, is to make a lot of money and then give it away, right? So, um, uh, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world is to put your name on a building at a, at a prestigious university as philanthropy. Uh, but uh, but we, we prize this within our culture. 
And um, so there's an American part to what do we do, how do we take care of other people? Um, but then there's, as Christians, if you grew up and you're an evangelical Christian, we have this, we have another kind of layer on that because we believe that serving those who are in need and those who are poor uh, is a way to understand Jesus. Jesus said, right, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Um, and so we go, well, well, wait a minute, Jesus is in this, so we want to go do that, right? And, um, and in doing that, um, working with the poor, there's this other thing. There's this, um, there's this uh, what, what has affectionately been known as the Protestant work ethic. And so there's partly truth in it, but there's, there's, uh, there's some other mixed motivations in it. And this is just from my own experience. The own experience is that if you're a Christian and you obey God, you're going to make better decisions. And this is true, right? You start obeying God, decisions get better. And we can take that and say, therefore, you know, when in our faith, if faith takes hold of somebody, it will move them out of poverty, right? And, um, and here's the thing, and I'm just really trying to be as honest as I've sat and worked with the poor. Part of it is true, but there's another part that's not necessarily true, right? Like I have, uh, I have guys who work, who live down in uh, the area, and, I'll, and I know what, how much money they get. The, the government, they're on a government backstop. The government pays for their room, and they get about two to $300 to live on. And so one of, one of the guys who I'm close with, his name's Mike, Mike smokes. And so I'm always taking his cigarettes. I'm like, what are you doing? You're, you're, you know, he's, he's probably in his early 30s. And, uh, and I go, Mike, how much do you smoke? How much do you smoke a day? And it's just one social evil I'm talking about here. <laughs> he goes, oh, uh, probably like two or three packs. I go, you don't smoke two or three packs. You can't afford to smoke two or three packs a day. I mean, you know, it's, it's like four or five dollars for a pack of cigarettes. Fifteen, it doesn't, none of the math makes sense, Mike. You can't, Right? But somehow, this is where a lot of his money goes, right? So you start to understand that when we, re, when, we uh, uh, when, when people come to faith, a lot of times, many of the decisions we make, uh, they do. They can really have a positive impact on our life. But at the same time, the thing that happens is that you will meet people who are very poor. Uh, and especially down, we'll knock on doors, and they're amazingly content. Um, and they love Jesus. They pray differently. And you go, wait a minute, that doesn't fit into my context. You see, if we believe in the Protestant work ethic as this kind of background belief, then it's easier for me to push my children to achieve more in school, believing that God, this is part of God's blessing. And, 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 uh, and how I think is not so much that that's wrong or this is bad or this is right and that's wrong. As much as it is that God is always calling, our, is calling us not just to do our best, but to engage with him. And uh, there's something happens within that thought that it justifies sometimes more of our culture beliefs about who God uses and who God loves, right, and blesses, rather than our, 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 a biblical belief of it. So God is always wanting to break down and rip apart our cultural kind of hard set uh, beliefs and they're so subtle I mean again it's the water we swim in um, and so this is why scripture is beautiful and the body of, of, of believers is beautiful because we're constantly challenging ourselves not just to do things better but to hear God's voice um, so um, 
And so one of the reasons why I love working with the poor is because I don't believe and why I believe we need them is because I can't really understand who God is without them. I don't have a really good understanding of who God is without them. If I stay within my own part, you're right, of, of my world, um, we just all mimic our beliefs to each other. Right? It's, it's, it's easy, and it makes me feel very comfortable. Right? It, ma- it, it makes me feel very comfortable. So um, John chapter 9 is the story of the man born blind. And I just want to talk about a small piece of it. This is my, one of my favorite uh, passages in Scripture. Um, because of the depth of it, because of the personality we see in our Savior and Jesus, he just, uh, the things he does are, he's, um, this is free, this is just a side note. Uh, Jesus has so much personality. God has so much personality. We, We sterilize him all the time. And what I love about the Gospels is co- we constantly see this twinkle in his eyes that, that he never does things, as C.S. Lewis says, the same way twice. He's always doing things different. Even at the end of Revelation, uh, it says, behold, I am now making all things new. He's always creating. He's always, re- you know, God is always into that. He's never, he, he's not like, okay, you guys know the rules, you know. Uh, he's not asleep at the wheel. Uh, He's constantly in motion, and he's constantly working. So John chapter 9 says this. As he, Jesus, went along, uh, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this was the common belief amongst the people that loved God and followed him. If this person was born blind, God was doing something in their life, right? That something had, this was either a curse, this was a, uh, this was, uh, you know, almost uh, as we, as people use kind of the, the karma term, which actually when they use it, it's really not karma, right? Uh, it's really justice. It's like, oh, see, you did something wrong, this is payback, right? Um, that somehow that this was, this was an accepted belief and, and I watch the disciples, they're asking the question, how does Jesus answer it? Jesus says this, neither. Eh, wrong. Both accounts. Both of your answers, yes. They're totally wrong. Right? In other words, the culture, the cultural context, everything you've learned about who God was and how he, why people are born this way, all of the answers are wrong. Right? They're saying, is it over here, God, or is it over here? And he goes, actually, your, your whole paradigm is completely wrong. And so this is, in fact, if you think about it, this is Jesus. This is exactly how Jesus talks um, to, the, to the people of faith uh, all the time in his ministry. In fact, his one expression is this. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> right? Like you don't, you guys, you, you missed it. And so one of our first things in coming to work with the poor is always having this mindset, this, this humble mindset of saying, Okay, there's a chance that I think it's this or I think it's this, but there is always a good chance that I don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, right? That's always in the back of my mind. Like, oh, when it comes to giving out advice, I think it's this, but just in case, I might not understand it. So what does Jesus do? He does, uh, he does this. He says, neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Isn't that beautiful to go from this man sinned, the parents sinned, no. This happened that this man here, 
This would happen so God could do an unbelievable work in his life. That their family story would be changed, that he would love God, that he would have an affection towards him, right? That other people would be, would be their jaws would drop. This happened so that God could do work, right? So every time something comes up negative, you go, well, what's happening? God goes, this happened so that God could work. Not how do we get past this? How do we manage this, right? Um, so, um, so then Jesus starts talking, and I always imagine him doing it. He says, but this happens so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and he put it in the man's eyes. And he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he had to go across, basically across Jerusalem um, uh, to, to have that uh, washed. And so the man went and washed and came home seen. Now it says this, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he, uh, some claim that he was, and others says, nah, he just looked like him. But he insisted himself, no, I'm the man. So, so a miracle happens, and I always love this, there's so much in this. Um, what happens, we start trying to justify it. Nah, he's not the guy. Right? God does, something, God does something amazing, and we try to, well, you know, it wasn't, we try to start justifying how, how uh, maybe it wasn't God himself working in, in some way. Yeah, there's some scientists. Oh, we prayed for this person, they were healed. Yeah, you know, but, you know, they did go, they had some medicine, so maybe it was just, you know, the body's an amazing thing. It heals itself, right? Anytime something like this happens, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that... It, we will have a resistance to, uh, there's something in us that would like to um, uh, humanize that process a little more rather than, rather than lean into God and, and ask him a different set of questions. When God comes near, it's a scary thing. The children of Israel, they come out of Israel uh, and God takes out the Egyptian army. We see miracles happen. They come to Mount Sinai. God comes and rests on Mount Sinai before giving them the Ten Commandments. And what, um, what happens? The people go to Moses and say, you go talk to God ourselves for us. We don't want any part of this. We are afraid. And so instead of building affection, God's power can actually, it actually, if it, when it's real, can frighten us. And intellectually, it, it does the same thing. A lot of times we start, we start trying to humanize that process. Now, I'm not talking about, really, I, and, and I know, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, driving and praying for a parking spot and then saying, oh, praise God, we got a parking spot. Yeah, there's a whole garage of parking spots, Mom, you know. Uh, but um, I prayed for parking spots and got them before, which has been amazing. Uh, so the one thing that happens here that I love is that the disciples, the man being, the man who was, who was blind that was being, um, uh, that was healed, the healing was for him. But the healing was really as much, first thing, it was much about the disciples than it was about the man. The man was healed. It was, it, it was fantastic. But it was really the disciples that needed their world rocked. The and this is in scripture for a reason. Because they went, hey, remember the day Jesus? Like, that, that's, that's got to go in. Right? Because that was the day they went, wait a minute. Everything we thought about, this rearranged their, their thinking about, about how God was. 
Who was cursed in a society? Who was blessed in a society? Right? What do you do with the poor? Oh, these people? Well, this was common. And I've never heard this. <laughs> right now, it's, it's a very huge thing in downtown San Francisco with, every, with, uh, with, with real estate going crazy and a lot of poor people still in the tenderloin. It's, you know, wh what's, wrong with the, wh what's wrong with the poor? This man sitting here, the blind man begging? Common. This man's cursed. Who sinned? He's his own problem, right? And uh, it's very common. Common back then, we still, we still feel, I mean, there's still a lot of people that feel the same way. Um, you know, okay, let's take care of the poor. Can we put them someplace where they're okay, right? And we kind of get rid of the homeless people. I don't like stepping over people. Now, I don't say this lightly. I'm talking, this is, this is where I live. This is where I get, a, I get a work every day. And when you're down there, for me, um, and I, I say this, I, I want to say this with great respect, is I, I, I get to understand who the people in the neighborhood are. Um, when you pass through it every day going to work, everybody is scary to you because you don't understand where the limits are. I can look and say, oh, that's Julie. She is, a, she's literally, she's, a, she's an alcoholic. She's a blackout drunk, and these guys, they, they sit every day over here, and they do this, and actually those guys there, they're actually dealers, and you don't talk with them. But when you walk through, everybody just seems like a threat. It's outside of our, it's outside of our comfort zone, right? So this was the wrong belief the disciples had. Um, they had it that, um, that somehow that certain people in society, that their sins had caught up with them. And Jesus goes, no, that's not true. The poor are not cursed by God, and it's sometimes not all, it's not always their issue, right? Now, I can go into a lot of the, the details that I see just within our own neighborhood, but just to say, remember, first and foremost, that this passage was as much about the disciples um, learning than it was about the man being healed. The disciples needed that man to be healed more than almost as much as that man needed to see, right? The second is this. Uh, the healing is also not just about Jesus, right? Vernon, uh, um, Brendan Manning has this great term. He said, Jesus resisted the temptation to be spectacular. In other words, Jesus, was not, Jesus did not have a marketing plan, right? He was not trying to gain popularity, right? Uh, whatever it is in our, our world today. He would heal people and then say what to them? Go show yourselves to the priest. Go show yourself, go to the temple, go wash in the pool of Siloam, right? And you'll be clean, right? Um, and it, it's beautiful. Don't tell anybody. And what would people do? They would tell everybody. But why? Why didn't Jesus want that? It's a terrible way. If you're going to announce that you're a Messiah, you know, get the word out there. He wasn't healing people and being like, that's right, it's me, it's Jesus. That's right, Jesus Christ, write it down, you know? He didn't have a line of t-shirts out, you know. He didn't, was trying to market himself. He wasn't a brand. We love to make him a brand. He wasn't a brand. And he fought against it. He was looking, he's always looking for true followers. And he wasn't looking for crowds of gawkers. Hey, Jesus, do that trick again, right? And this is sometimes how the world, you know, you see that once, once in a while in, 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 in satire where they try to make Jesus into a man who was, you know, was more sensational. Uh, and they make him simple, where he wasn't, that was never, that was never his, his, his take. So the healing was not about Jesus either. He wasn't, in fact, he heals the man, he sends him away. And so the story is beautiful because, uh, because he later comes back and finds the man, but he finds him only after the Pharisees 
had, uh, had kind of chewed him up and spit him out. But this was what was great about this story. When the Pharisees dragged this blind man in, they go, uh, and Jesus did this purposely. Jesus was also a prophet. So one of the things that happens in this healing, he's doing it on the Sabbath. And he knows he's doing it on the Sabbath. He's making a statement. So then he's sending him to the, to the Pharisees because he wants to, right? He wants to rearrange their, their thinking. So what do you think? And their debate is over. Wait a minute. This man can't be from God. Right? If you get time this week, read over. It like, can't be from God. Why? He healed on the Sabbath. God doesn't heal on the Sabbath. And you go, wait a minute. You look at the scriptures, you go, this is something that you have, you have added on to, to, uh, to the words of Moses. Right? You, this, has been, this is your cultural, you know, overlay. You've just assumed that, this, that God would not heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus heals on the Sabbath to cause the question. And the beautiful thing about the man born blind, and I say it's not just about the man born blind, is that the, the, the disciples got it wrong, the Pharisees didn't know what to do with it, and the man born blind, uh, we don't know his name, that's how he's referred to, but he, every, everything he does is just amazing and, and perfect. If you read the story, they question him. He tells the truth. When they say, well, he couldn't have been a sinner. He goes, well, you're asking so many questions. Maybe you're his follower. He does nothing but tell the truth to the place where the Pharisees get mad and kick him out. Now, he's been blind. He's not been able to enter into the temple. That's why he sits at the gate. Right? There's something that happens when you enter into a relationship with somebody that has literally nothing to lose. The man born blind, they brought his parents in. And his parents were so afraid of, of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees, that they, they say, uh, well, you ask him. We don't want any part of this. They're afraid of losing social status, right? They can't go, no, that's our son. We love him. We don't know what happened. They went, no, you tell him. We don't want any part of this. The man born blind has nothing to lose. Somehow working with people and having people close to you that have nothing to lose, the needy, the poor, people going through a hard time, right? Um, they, they speak to us differently, and it's a voice that's uncomfortable to us, but it makes us, uh, it, it, it makes us understand God in a different way. It makes us understand our Father in a different way. Um, so this is what the disciples needed, and Jesus knew that they needed to understand this. Now, um, there's this, principle in, there's this principle that really makes sense. You see, we believe in this God who came down from, down from heaven and he lays aside all of his power. And, he, uh, and it actually says this in, in the book of, uh, book of Philippians. It says that even though Jesus existed in the form of God, he chose equality, equality with God, something not to be grasped. He emptied himself and he made himself nothing, Right? So uh, there's this principle. It's called the principle of least interest. And um, uh, can, like, okay, so I'm, I'm asking. So uh, this is just the example. You just, you just stand up. Okay, so let me give you an example so you guys get a vote on this, right? So, um, so um, yeah, yeah, you too. Vanessa, is that right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So let's just say that, um, D Doug, right? Donald. Donald. Uh, so let's just say Donald. I, I just met him like a half hour. So let's just say Donald likes Vanessa. You guys like it, right? But let's just say 
Vanessa does not really like Donald. Oh, that, good response. So now, okay, so us as guys, every guy in the place, we understand what love that is not returned, we all understand what that feels like from like 12 years old up to, you know, 28 or 30 or whenever, you know, some, you know, if you're married, you know, like for me at 31, some woman went, well, I guess you're the best of the last, right? You, know, you got, but, um, uh, but let's just say that, um, that that was true. In this relationship, who has the power? Donald loves Vanessa. Vanessa does not like, love Donald. Okay, let's vote on it. Who says Donald has the power? <laughs> One guy. That's, that's your boy right there. <laughs> you were right. You know, you, you, you need one of those friends in your life. Because <laughs> it's hard to live with everybody else when they just shake their head. Okay, who says Vanessa has the power? Raise your hand if you believe Vanessa has the power. Yeah, so this is called the principle of least interest. And there's a background story to this. But here's the principle. Whoever loves the least has the power. Right? Whoever loves the least has the power. So power and love are opposites. In other words, you can't hold power over somebody and love them. So this is what makes Jesus make sense, right? Yeah, so, okay, you guys can sit down. Thank you. So this is what Jesus makes sense. A God who has everything. Why would he lay down all of his power and come to earth, not just as the king, but as a servant? Because he says, it would be easy for me to show you my power. That's always easier. We, we know relationships. We know work situations. We know uh, parent, family situations where, where there's polit- you know, political things where it's always about power. And God says, I have all power, but I cannot love unless I lay down my power. So what does God do? He lays down his power. And he comes to earth as a baby. That's what we celebrate, right? As a helpless baby. You know, as a servant. And he's teaching the disciples. Right? This is very counter to the world system that we live in. And this is why this is the, those terms, the kingdom, right? God goes, no, in the kingdom, we work differently, right? So if you think about it, ev- almost, everything, um, almost everything that we experience um, in, in our life uh, as Christians, all the most beautiful things have been when, that, when this happens. When people lay down our agendas and our life, uh, the, uh, our own motivations, and we, do, and we sacrifice for somebody else. All the beautiful stories of faith, hospitals, schools, right? I mean, uh, our heroes from Florence Nightingale to, uh, you know, who sacrifices, you know, hospitals that were made, people that uh, went into different countries risking their lives over and over. Why? For, 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 the, for the purposes of some, you know, for the good of somebody else. And where's the worst stories of uh, our Christian faith? is in almost any time, and this is hopefully something for you to debate this week if you think about it, almost any time the church has had legitimate power. It wasn't built that way, right? They have legitimate power. They form voting blocks. They, they, they rule a kingdom, right? It's almost any of those times that, that th- these become our worst stories of faith. And so why we need the poor is this. Um, when you work with the poor, they're not impressed with any of our credentials. That's based on power. And the problem that we have is we live in an achievement culture. At City Team, we use the term uh, relational, uh, relational culture uh, versus, uh, God, no, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. Um, um, we work on, oh, knowledge-based culture versus uh, relational, uh, relational cu- uh, culture. So in a knowledge-based culture, our, 
our resumes, right, our schools, things like that, those translate. You can meet somebody, not know them. Oh, where'd you go? You went to, J you know, you went to HSB? Oh, you must be a great person. You know, you went to business school there? Yeah, you're part of the team, right? This is what we use. Um, it's, um, but in relational cultures, they share, right? In, in, in one of our headwinds, being, in, being who we are, is that in a relational culture, we have to try extra hard to place down our power. It's so, uh, it's so, at times, ingrained in us. And so this is why we need the poor more than they need us. We don't, I mean, going and feeding somebody who's poor or helping them out or befriending them is, is, is incredibly important. But it's almost more important for us to lose, to, to put all of the stuff that we use as our identity aside. And it's only those who are poor and those who are needy that sometimes can teach us what's really important. And they show us this different side of who, who God is and what he really treasures. We can't do it without them. So I'm not, and I'm, I'm not saying that we should blow up um, our, our, um, our economic system or, you know, or, or talk down about um, an academic process. I just would say that it's incomplete. Without the poor speaking into our lives, um, we, we will never fully understand Right? It, it, going back to my uh, uh, first illustration with our middle schoolers, we would take them down, high school students, take them down uh, uh, to, a, um, uh, to a, a village, let's say in a poor country, and the first day we'd say, what did you notice? Uh, there's hardly any, you know, hardly any electricity, the houses are really bad, you know, and they would just speak in their own language. Then I'd say, what about the kids? <laughs> and they'd say, yeah, there's lots of kids running around. Some of them don't have shoes on. Go, oh, yeah. They go, are they happy? And they'd all kind of go, yeah, they, they are happy. What are they doing? Well, they, they run around and they play. They go, yeah. Then we look at them and go, are you happy? <laughs> Do you run around and play? They're like, mm, not too often. Just on my Xbox, you know. I'd be like, okay. So who needs who? You can come and maybe help them out in this way, but you need their perspective. Maybe more than they need yours. Right? No, I'm not saying that we just, I'm not all saying that we don't work to end poverty and injustice. But I am saying as somebody of faith, when, you, when we start to understand that the poor have something for us that we can't get through our own communities, um, this is where, uh, these are the places where God will speak to us d deeply. Anyways, um, so why do we need the poor? Just in, in finishing, uh, because the poor and those in need really do teach us how to love. They really do. They recalibrate us. Um, they expose uh, our, we need the poor more than they need us because they expose our false beliefs and our biases as believers. I have these guys who are, I have 32 addicts who live in our, 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 our place at City Team. And you sit down and you listen to their stories. And almost every time, the more I've listened, the more I say, I'm just like this guy. Uh, my, 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 my addictions and my issues have not cost me what it's cost him. But I identify more now with his story. And it, it, it just softens my heart in completely different ways. I need, I need those guys as much as they need a place to be, become sober. I need their stories in my life to understand Really, like, wait a minute, you know, when I hear the news, I translate it very differently because of them. Um, 
but they really do. They show us who Jesus is. The poor really do show us who Jesus is. Um, let me just finish with this. Uh, Mother Teresa said it this way, you know, this woman who held uh, people as they died just to love them. She said, our life of po poverty is as necessary as the work itself. She says, only in heaven will we see how much we owe the poor for helping us to love God better because of them. Um, and so, um, as you think about serving and where you would be engaged, my encouragement to you is, it's not that it always has to be in the tenderloin or in a, in a, in a, in a poor community. It can be anything. It can be somebody who's struggling right now, whether they're unemployed or maybe a family that's going through something hard where it's easy to say, oh, we're there for you, but it's difficult to help just be with them and hold, right, hold their pain because, you know, we think, oh, we just pray and God takes away our pain. No, sometimes God calls us to walk with people through that, right? Maybe it is working uh, with a, a community, whatever it is, but that you would engage and that we as believers would come in saying, God, I'm here to be taught by you. I'm here to engage. Teach me. And that, uh, and that posture um, allows God then to start to kind of break apart like the disciples. Um, those wrong, those, uh, the, you know, that, the, those biases that we don't even know within our own faith that we have and our, our beliefs about God that might be totally false. And these might be some of the headwinds that we face in our own faith. Anyway, hey, let me pray. Uh, thank you for letting me share it this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much that you sacrificed everything to come be with us. Thanks that you understand that you work in us even, uh, even as, as, as uh, sometimes terrible as our thoughts are about you. Um, and we do. We ask that you would, uh, you would have mercy on us um, in the best way. That you would, uh, you would teach us and you would just slowly, um, the way that you do, Holy Spirit, show us the places where you want us to change our heart. Uh, the places that, that uh, allow us courage to go into hard places, uh, uh, to be with people and to confront hard issues uh, with your love and uh, looking for you to teach us. Uh, thank you, Father, for placing people in our lives who have showed us you. And God, we just ask, and I ask for, for CLC, that you would do this for them as a congregation. Lead them to people uh, that would just uh, uh, show them and expose them. Um, and Father, tear down our wrong beliefs about you. We have so many that we don't know. We admit that in, uh, humbly. Uh, but we want to be close to you. Would you give us the courage and would you show us uh, these areas that we could go to to be taught by you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, amen.